Today's scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 62 through chapter 28, verse 10, and may be found on page 989 in the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people he has been risen from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they made They went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They come to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Every week here at our church, we include inside the worship guide a discussion guide. It's for the purpose of a couple of reasons, really. Is One, it gives you space to take some notes on the inside page, as well as gives questions for later on follow-up in your life group or in your family or uh, just in your own personal study. So I invite you to take that out and use it to take notes this morning. We've been recently in a series of messages from the book of Matthew, this series called Reasons for Hope. And today we're winding up that series as we look at the resurrection story here on Easter Sunday. I'll begin with this. Suppose you uh, have a friend who is going through a hard time. Um, Let's say that this friend of yours has just taken on a new job and it's a bit too much for him. He's young, he's inexperienced, he feels in over his head. Not only that, this friend of yours tends toward being kind of a melancholic personality. Plus, he seems to suffer constantly from allergies and colds and acid reflux and all kinds of other problems. This friend of yours is a great guy. He is super loyal, but he's an introvert and a a bit of a, a perfectionist. He worries a lot about how well he's doing with things and whether he's going to succeed in life or not. And some of this stems from the fact that he had a somewhat absent father growing up. He loved his mother, he loved his grandmother, but it seems that his father was 
kind of not involved. Have I just described most of the people in this room this morning? (laughs) Well, what I'm really describing is the relationship of the Apostle Paul to young Timothy, two actual historical figures in the New Testament. See, Timothy was a young and inexperienced and in-over-his-head kind of man. Paul had given him a pretty tough assignment. His assignment was to be a leader, to be an overseer of some of the new churches that had been planted in Asia Minor. And Timothy, in fact, did tend toward becoming being somewhat of a melancholic. He also had a lot of sicknesses that he always complained of. He tended to be discouraged. So Paul, as a good mentor should, wrote Timothy letters. Two of those letters are in our New Testament. And do you know what Paul told Timothy to encourage him, to keep him on track, to lift his spirits, and to help Timothy stay focused on the task ahead? Do you know what Paul told him? He said, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead and descended from David. Isn't that interesting that of all of the things that Paul might have told Timothy to encourage and sustain his faith, he said, Timothy, I want you to remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. Now, why would Paul tell Timothy that? It's because of the very next sentence that Paul wrote. He said, this is my gospel. What does the word gospel mean? It means good news, right? Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I've got good news for you. In the midst of your discouragement, in the midst of your melancholy, in the midst of your many challenges in life, the good news, Timothy, is that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. How is the fact, here's your question this morning, how is the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead good news for Timothy? More importantly, how is the fact that Jesus raised from the dead good news for you? That's what I want to answer this morning. And I've got four things to talk about. I'll spend most of my time on the first one. There's a lot of content on number one, and then the uh, second, third, and fourth one are going to be somewhat brief. Four ways that you see the resurrection of Jesus as good news for you today. First, it's good news for the skeptical. It's good news. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is good news for the skeptical. A few moments ago, you heard from Christine the story about the resurrection of Christ as given to us from the book of Matthew. And the story, I do not doubt, is familiar to most of you. Basically, in a nutshell, it is this, that Jesus, crucified on Good Friday, rose again on Easter Sunday morning. Simple enough, straightforward enough. And this has been believed by Christians for 2,000 years or so. It's a pivotal piece of the gospel the good news of Jesus. Take it away, you don't have good news anymore. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, he says this, he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. 
Paul says that is very, very important to maintain that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But of course, as you well know, there are skeptics in the world, and maybe you're one of them. If so, I'm glad you're here this morning. We welcome you as a skeptic. The skeptic says that there is no way that a dead man, not even a very good dead man, like almost everybody acknowledges that Jesus was, could rise up out of his grave. These skeptics say that the resurrection was either a legend that developed over time or it was a hoax perpetrated by religious radicals desperate to justify their movement or maybe it was meant to be taken metaphorically. That means not literally, but to take it symbolically, many skeptics say. They say we shouldn't believe that Jesus really was dead and came to life. We should just believe in the example of Jesus or the principles that Jesus lived by or the ever-living spirit of Jesus. That's actually what a lot of skeptics say. There's one by the name of Dr. Marcus Borg that I read recently. He's an American scholar, theologian, and a co-founder of the famous Jesus Seminar that some of you might have heard about. He wrote a book not long ago called The Meaning of Jesus. And here's what Dr. Marcus Borg says. See if it's the voice of a skeptic. I think it is. He says, I now see Easter very differently. For me, he says, it is irrelevant whether or not the tomb was empty. Whether Easter involved something remarkable happening to the physical body of Jesus is irrelevant. My argument, he says, is not that we know the tomb was empty or that nothing happened to his body, but simply that it doesn't matter. The truth of Easter, as I see it, he says, is not at stake in this issue. That's the voice of a skeptic who says it really doesn't matter whether we believe in an empty tomb or not. He would probably go on to say that what matters is whether we believe in what Jesus represented and what the, what the resurrection story is meant to communicate. But my question for the skeptic is, and if you're skeptical, my question to you is, how can you believe in something if it has no historical basis? Why should you believe in something that has no basis in historical fact? Has anybody been to SeaWorld recently? SeaWorld is a place where you can go and believe. I'm talking about the Shamu show. If you were to go to the Shamu show, you would see a splendid performance of Shamu the killer whale with his trainers. Do you know what they say to believe in there? The spirit of wonder. The spirit of wonder. Believe in it, they say. But I ask, what is the spirit of wonder anyway? How do you believe in that? What if your spirit of wonder is different from my spirit of wonder? Which one of us would get it right? Maybe neither of us. Or maybe both of us are right. And then if you travel just a little bit further down the road to Disney World, go to the Magic Kingdom... You would probably see parades and you would hear music coming over the uh, intercom. And one of the songs that you would hear would say this, Just believe and your dreams will, what? Come true. (laughs) We're famous, you know, here in Orlando for that message. Just believe and your dreams will come true. The question is, believe in what? 
Well, they don't say. And see, that's the problem with skepticism. The skeptic is left with the question, believe in what? If you reject the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm happy to say that the New Testament presents solid historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Let me mention just six things that are solid evidence. I could go on with more, but just because of the uh, time limit, I'm just going to mention these six and be somewhat quick about it. First of all, here's some historical evidence. First, According to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there were over 500 eyewitnesses of the living Jesus following Easter Sunday. Number two, there are five different accounts of the resurrection and the post-mortem appearances of Jesus in the New Testament. You have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You just heard one this morning, Matthew. And then there's also 1 Corinthians 15, the first few verses that talk about all the people to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection. Not to mention the numerous re- uh, references to the resurrection in the rest of the book, uh, books of the New Testament, book of Acts, the letters of Paul, and so on. And each of these five accounts, the five main accounts, is somewhat unique, as you probably know. Each one presents a slightly different perspective on the same event. Sometimes that causes a bit of trouble for people. They read Matthew, he says this. He says, for example, there's only one angel. You read in another gospel, it says there's two. And that creates some conflict for some people. They think that that is contradictory. But here is the way you need to look at it, that that actually the fact that each of those gospel accounts of the resurrection is somewhat unique is in itself evidence of their trustworthiness. Think about that with me just a minute. It's actually when people who claim to be eyewitnesses give you the exact same details that you would actually grow suspicious of their testimony. Isn't that true? It's when you say the exact same thing that somebody else says that you wonder, are they in cahoots with each other? Or are they copying each other? But instead, when you read the gospel accounts of the resurrection, you've got four different angles on the same event. Each reporter is concentrating on one or more of the other details. Number three, these different accounts that I'm talking about were written so close in time to the actual event of the resurrection that if they weren't accurate, there would have been tons of people who were alive at this time, who would have protested, no, no, that's not what happened. But you don't have that. Number four, think about how the disciples are presented in the resurrection story. I think this is really interesting. Think about how the disciples come off looking when you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account of the resurrection. It's not the disciples, but it's the Jewish religious leaders who remember Jesus' prediction about his own resurrection. It's not the disciples, but it's Joseph of Arimathea who buries Jesus in his own tomb. And most strikingly for me, it's not the disciples, but it's women who care for the body of Jesus, who are the first witnesses of the resurrected Christ and who go and inform the disciples about Jesus. you got to remember, this was a, a very patriarchal society back then. The testimony, I'm sorry, ladies, but the testimony of women 
back in Jesus' day, was not even accepted as valid testimony in court. That's the indicator of the social standing of women back in that day. But in these stories, it's the disciples, the men, the leaders of, of the early church who come off looking pretty bad. So I'm thinking that if they had wanted to invent a story about the resurrection, they wouldn't have written so embarrassingly about their own failures with women being the main characters. Number five, after the resurrection, the 11 disciples were thoroughly changed in character and in behavior. They went from being frightened and demoralized fishermen to bold, powerful preachers of the gospel who were ready to die for their beliefs. They weren't just ready to die for their beliefs. Most of them did die for their beliefs. Peter was crucified upside down out of the, outside the city of Rome. James was run through with a sword. Bartholomew was butchered to pieces. Paul had his head chopped off. Stephen was stoned to death. John was exiled to the island of Patmos, a horrible place to live. One of my favorite speakers, Steve Brown, says this about that. He says, every one of these men could have grown old patting the heads of their grandchildren. Not one did. Instead, they died as martyrs with the story on their lips that they had been with Jesus after he died. Unless the disciples were telling the truth, they were fools. And number six, and finally, consider the phenomenal growth of the Christian church. After the day in which Jesus rose from the dead, the Christian church exploded in growth. By the fourth century A.D., Christianity covered the entire Western world. The question you need to wrestle with is, could such a religious movement with such worldwide impact be built on a lie? Could the Christian Sabbath have been changed from the last day of the week to the first day of the week because of a fairy tale? See, I think when you start adding all this up, and like I said earlier, there are lots more things I could have said had time allowed. The only thing that can explain the growth of the church, the bravery of the disciples, the hundreds of eyewitnesses, and these other things is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection validates the uniqueness of Jesus, and it gives you rock-solid historical evidence for your faith. So if you're a skeptic, That's really good news. Secondly, what I'd like to show you is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is good news not only for the skeptic, but for the guilty. The resurrection is good news for the guilty. Let's look back again at Matthew. Did you keep your place there in Matthew chapter 28? Look with me at verse 9 of our text. It says that when the women met Jesus on their way back to the disciples to tell them what they had seen. On the way back to Jesus, I mean to the disciples, Jesus suddenly appears to them. And in Matthew 28, 9, he says, greetings. Now that, that's a neat word in itself, actually. That word means be of good cheer. It, it's a salutation. It means high regards. It doesn't just mean, hi there. It's communicating 
love and grace. Greetings, he says to the, to the women. Welcome is another way of translating that same word. And then look at verse 10. Jesus goes on to say to these women, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now you need to really pause and ponder what Jesus says there. Isn't it striking that the people that Jesus revealed himself to after his resurrection were not the cultural icons of his day. They were not royalty. They were not the movers and shakers of Jewish high society. They were ordinary people who needed grace. People like you and people like me. Those are the ones Jesus revealed his resurrected glory to. Think about it. What had the disciples just done a couple days before this? They'd fallen asleep while Jesus was sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. They had run away when Jesus was arrested. They did nothing to defend Jesus when he was on trial before Pilate. In fact, you know well that Peter denied that he even knew Jesus on three different occasions. You read through the uh, crucifixion accounts and you get the distinct impression that there maybe were a few of the disciples there watching the crucifixion. We only know, I think, about one, John. Few of them, at best, were there at the cross to support Jesus, to speak words of comfort and love to him, to speak up for him, to offer him something to drink. The disciples, you see, were guilty of some of the worst sins. And yet now, here on Easter Sunday, Jesus Christ says that he's looking forward to seeing them. And not only that, he calls them his brothers. I don't know about you, but if I'd been treated that way, that's the last thing I would think of calling some, somebody else. A brother. Do you get that? Do you get it? Do you get the good news in that? If you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you know what this says? He doesn't call you just his servant or his worker. He doesn't even just call you his disciple, his follower, and not even merely his friend. Jesus, if you're in faith today with relationship to him, calls you his brother and his sister. You are related to Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, by blood. His blood. What does that say about your failures? They don't matter. Not to your standing in his heart. It's okay that you have failed. God loves and accepts you anyway. What does this say about your sins? Are they bad? Yes. Are you bad? No. You're his dearly beloved child if you're in faith, related to him by faith this morning. The way you stand before the Father is positively righteous and positively complete. To God, you look like Jesus. You don't feel that way most of the time. Neither do I. 
lay hold on that by faith. That's the gospel. It's the good news. To God, if you're in Christ this morning, you look like Jesus. God's wrath has been satisfied and he could not be more pleased with you. Do you, do you get that? Romans 4.25 says this very clearly. Look at this verse. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Do you know that word? It means you have been given the very righteousness of Christ. And it's bound up in the truth of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's very, very good news. I, you know, I don't know where you are spiritually this morning. There are a lot of people I'm looking at that I've never met before. And it's my job, you know, to bring these claims before you and to, and to discomfort you perhaps even. That's what they pay me for. You may have already committed your life to Jesus. I trust you have. But if you have not, if you've never said to God, Lord, I want to be your child. You've never committed your life to Jesus Christ. You know what? You're still in your sins. You are. You're not in right standing before God right now if you've never done that before. Turn from sin, trusted in Jesus. And Jesus Christ is inviting you today to make a change. In fact, it's the most important change you will ever make. Now, don't shut me off here. Keep listening. It's not going to take all your problems away if you make this commitment. It's not going to make you rich or healthy or better looking. But if you will turn to God with all your heart and admit to him that you're a sinner and that you need his forgiveness, and if you'll commit your life to Jesus and following after him, here's what it will do. Here's what it will do. It'll remove your guilt and shame forever. It'll make you right with God and ready to die. It'll give you a freedom and a joy that you've never known before. It'll begin to put things back together again for you. It'll affect your marriage, your family, your friendships, your work, everything. And you'll become a brother or a sister to Jesus. And there's no higher privilege than that. There's no greater joy than that. Make Easter 2010 the day your life started all over. Would you? You can do that today. There are people that are going to be stationed at each window after the service today. It would be very easy for you to walk over and just say, I'd like to commit my life to Jesus today. And they'll help you do that. Well, number three, what have we seen so far? We've seen that the resurrection is good news for the skeptical. It's good news for the guilty. Thirdly, it's good news for the grieving It's good news for the grieving. I love the picture that we're given in the New Testament of Mary Magdalene. We don't know a whole lot about Mary Magdalene other than that she was from Magdala, which was a village on the southwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. Some people think that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. I don't think so. There's no evidence of that in the New Testament. In fact, if she had been a prostitute, she probably would not be named. It would have been too shameful for her to have a name recorded. So I don't think it was that. But Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus had cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. So what that means is that she had been a victim of severe demonic possession or mental and or physical disease. But what we know for sure 
is that Mary Magdalene loved Jesus because he had changed her life. She was one of the women who followed Jesus and supported him and the disciples. She was among the last ones standing at the cross. She watched as Joseph and Nicodemus put Jesus' body in the tomb. And all four gospel writers, all four, tell us that Mary Magdalene was one of the first to go back to the tomb on Sunday morning of Easter Sunday to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial. But according to John's gospel, here's where I'm getting at here. When she thinks that someone has taken Jesus' body away and taken it and put it who knows where, Mary Magdalene is beside herself with grief and sadness. Why do I bring that up? I bring it up because a lot of you feel like Mary Magdalene today. A lot of these Easter lilies are dedicated to the memory of someone for whom you are mourning Your husband, your wife, one of your parents, a child, perhaps an unborn baby, a close friend. Someone has died and you miss that person terribly. It might even make you feel hopeless. So I give you 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Look at it. It says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who who have fallen asleep. What are first fruits? Well, they are the first little bits of a harvest at the beginning of harvest season. First fruits are the first installment of a far larger crop. First fruits are the guarantee that there is much more to come later. Just so... Christ's resurrection is the first installment on the future glory of all God's people. What do I mean by that? Just this. If you are a follower of Jesus, the resurrection of Christ from the grave is the assurance that you need that you will rise again at the last day with a glorified body and at the, uh, and at the beginning of eternity. And not only that, it is the assurance that you need that if your loved one died in Christ, he or she also will be raised from the dead and you will see him or her again. You will hold that child in your arms. You and your loved one will be forever with the Lord and all his people. Now look, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. We're not told a lot more than that. But this much I do know that the trumpet will sound. And the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? That, my friends, is good news if you're grieving today. It's good news for the skeptical, the guilty, the grieving. And let me just mention, because we're about really out of time, the last one. The resurrection of Jesus is good news for the weary. It's good news for the weary. And let me just end with this thought. If a dead man named Jesus got up and walked away, so can you. So can you because there's power in the empty tomb. Through faith in Jesus, being united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection gives you a new life principle. It gives you the power to be able to say to sin, you're no longer my master. Now, I know we continue to fail and fall. But the truth of the resurrection is that if you believe in Jesus following after him, 
you have the Holy Spirit to enable you to do the impossible. I love what C.S. Lewis once said. He said, we've become new men, and he would include women as well. He says in mere Christianity, we are not nice people. (laughs) We are new men. Do you get it? Do you see what he's saying? Christianity is not just about being nice. It's not making good people better. It's giving you a new life principle to live by. And that's good news for those of you who think you're too weak, too frail, too powerless, too imperfect to have an impact on our society. If those disciples could do it, so can you. Not because you're so wonderful, but because Jesus is risen. To you then this morning who are skeptical, to you who feel the guilt and the weight of your sin, to you who mourn and to you who feel weak and powerless, I say to you what Paul said to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the good news of Jesus' resurrection. Thank you that it gives us something to stand on, something to hope in, uh, some sure foundation upon which to walk in our lives. And so today we pray that no matter how people fit the four things that I talked about today, whether they feel skeptical or guilty or grieving or powerless and weak, Lord, whichever one they pick, maybe all four, We pray that the resurrection message will today give them hope for change. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.